It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Yeah. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no sheets. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour, and I mean it, of doom. And bloom, mostly bloom. Mostly bloom, but a little bit of doom. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a winsome window of wonder in a worrisome world. That was the parrot, by the yes, way. Yes, he's going to make noises. Parrot sounds like a he's smoke a- detector today. <laughs> we have the smoke detector brought out of The alarm, right? Yeah. Of course, that was like 20 years ago. <laughs> he doesn't well, forget a thing. Yeah, so we managed to uh, have... All sorts of electronic noises and all sorts of water noises. Yeah, the new one that he's doing is when you take the water bottle and pour it on the cooler. Um, it goes the five gallon. It goes. He goes bloop 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 bloop, <laughs> <laughs> which is what it does when it's filling up. That is so funny. Oh, what a bird! What a bird! Birdie, All right, bird, bird. Now hey. he sings that. He's gonna say that while we're doing the show. Birdie, bird, bird. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, well, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net. Right, the bird says right, <laughs> where you'll find over 990, closing in on 1,000 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. He just burped. And bird burped. Oh, boy. Well, we're going to have an interesting show this time around. Absolutely. I, is that your bird or mine? <laughs> I am Nurse Amy, an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife and we are the gang of two we are indeed beauty and the beast and we're talking hey about, don't call me a beast um <laughs> silly me for saying something like that oh, uh, you are the beauty Aww. i am the beast and i accept that and we are here to help you keep it together out there and even if everything else falls apart friends and neighbors <laughs> the bird said okay <laughs> friends and neighbors have you been injured in an accident with a malicious marmot? Our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only. 
and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nursing Me strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical help whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when times are tough, you might be the highest asset left to your family or the highest asset that sounds doesn't sound like a smoke detector left to your family. What do you do? What happens when there is no one that is a higher medical resource than you? Well, you show the world that you got more sense than a sack of salamanders. That's what, by learning what to do with injuries and illness when the rescue helicopter is not on the horizon. And while you're at it, get some supplies and medical kits to go along with all that knowledge. What better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated and never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues you'll face in tough times, and they're designed by yours truly, me, and hers truly, <laughs> a advanced registered nurse practitioner. She is a high medical resource, and I am the unskilled laborer. No, you're not. <laughs> Listen, I want to talk to people first uh, before they learn how to get a hold of us that we have some very immediate shows coming up. Yes. In just a day or two, we're going to be in Lexington, Kentucky for the Ultimate Outdoor Expo. I think this is their fourth year, third, oh, or, third wow. or fourth year. All right, sounds good. Yeah, so, so it's not we'll really there. a survivalist show, but it is an outdoor show, and we're doing of course, a lot of that. Everyone loves outdoor stuff. That's Absolutely. where you learn these skills. Absolutely. So we'll be there on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday this weekend. I think it's the 25th, 26th, and 27th of August. You were actually speaking on Saturday at 12 noon. And you're speaking on Sunday at 12 noon. Yes. All right. So. And you're going to talk about wilderness first aid right. skills. And uh-huh. I'm going to talk about wilderness and outdoor activity medical supplies. supplies. Right. What should be in that Which, of course, is just like survival and proper medical supplies. (laughs) It's all the same, folks. We're all in the same boat together. And then the following weekend, we're going to be in Chattanooga, Mm -hmm. Tennessee, which is where we are right now, in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. That's right. And that's going to be Sunday, September 3rd. We'll be doing a suture class, so check those out on doomandbloom.net forward slash medical classes, or you can just go to doomandbloom.net and Click on the classes page. So Chattanooga next weekend, the following weekend, which I think is the 9th and 10th or 8th and 9th, is in Knoxville. Right. So again, another Tennessee show. We will be, you will be speaking on Saturday and we'll be doing the suture class Sunday morning at 9.30. So three shows in a row. Right. If you're in the North Carolina, uh, East Tennessee area, well, you know, we are doing a lot of classes, hands-on classes. (laughs) And we're going to be coming Lots by. Lots of so, teaching. Right. So if you are in Knoxville or Chattanooga, please come and take our classes or just come and say hi. And uh, We'd love to see you. And in Lexington, Kentucky, we'll come and listen to our lectures. Well. Wait, do you want me to tell them how to get in touch with us? Oh, yeah. yeah well, you know, we learn as much from you guys as you do from us. So what's new, you? Share with the class. And it's so easy to do it because Nurse Amy's here to tell you how. Absolutely. Email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can also fill out a contact us form on doomandbloom.net. You can join our Facebook group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. Or like our page on Doom and Bloom, which is, of course, Facebook. Don't forget our YouTube channel at drbonesnurseamy.com. 
And we have a Twitter, at Prepper Show, which That's I've it. been trying to tweet. I guess it's called tweeting. <laughs> uh, did you mention YouTube? I'm sorry. Was, yeah, I did. Okay, you Absolutely. So awesome. I appreciate it. <clears throat> hey, you know, we got a lot of questions about how to ensure absolute sterility in an off-grid setting. And my answer would have to be, with great difficulty. You know, to see how tough it is to get to that goal, it's important to know what we're talking about. And there are some hard realities involved here, maybe about what to expect as a medic in a major disaster. Now, medical equipment is important to have, but that equipment has to be clean enough to use on a patient. Now, some items are disposable in nature, but disposing of your last set of instruments after suturing up a laceration, well, that's something you might not want to do. Now, something bad has happened. I'm not making this stuff anymore, so you got to do what you can with what you have, right? And not necessarily throw it away, even though it's supposed to be disposable. So you have to extend their uh, useful life, I guess, in survival situations. Now, many instruments made of stainless steel or the like are meant to be reused, but then, again, they shouldn't unless you have returned them to the condition they were in before they were utilized. In other words, clean and sterile. Well, is that possible to do? Well, it is indeed possible. We're going to talk about some ways that you can disinfect these things and get them at least to the point where you can use them. I think this is actually a really helpful thing to know because some of these things that we buy in these kits, these disposable kits, we have to realize in today's world we're in a disposable situation. Hospitals buy one-time kits, and sometimes they have equipment that's not necessarily their highest quality, but it's not too bad, and they're just throwing them away because they have unlimited budgets. They just buy new ones all the time. But in a situation where we may run out of these disposable kits or need to reuse these instruments, I think this information that you're giving is super important. Well, I think it is important too. And indeed, I remember situations where I would be handed a suture that was 18 inches long, 24 inches long, and I would tie one knot in it during a medical surgery like the tubal ligation right. had an incision what like an inch right half an inch wide and i would cut i would cut the the suture and they would throw the remaining length Everything. 23 inches of suture away right exactly and then give me another fresh suture right so it just goes to show how spoiled we are it in, is in this country we're a rich country and we are wasteful i mean and, and when i started and when you and i started mm-hmm. actually Thinking about survival situations, we really realize how wasteful we are as a culture, as a society, with regards to medical supplies. And we don't think about the usefulness of these things. Exactly. And we've become much more of a disposable country. Back when I was growing up in, in high school, if you had paper cups, that was a luxury. You only used Dixie cups. I'm sure everyone out there is going, yeah, they were... Every paper cup was called a Dixie cup because yep. that was the main supplier. Main brand, yep. Yeah, there weren't 40 other choices. If you needed paper cups, and usually they were real small, they were like the rinse cups that you used at the Dunlow office. You only did that when you went uh, on a picnic. Right. Even camping, you took stainless steel. Or plastic, you know, from your kitchen. You didn't have all these disposable plates. And our paper plates, if you remember the ones that they still make them, that are like, you know, a millimeter or an eighth of an inch thick. 
Yep. You have to stack about 10 of them to actually hold right. your food. Right. God forbid that you put a hot dog or a hamburger on them. I know. And <laughs> certainly we didn't have bottled water. Mm-hmm. That was not that was not a thing. If you wanted water, you had to find a water fount- fountain or you know, someplace, a source for it. Now we carry around disposable water bottles. We use People use disposable cups in their house, which I don't like, and I hate them. I always use regular cups, so we just wash them in the dishwasher so I'm not throwing things in the trash. But we've just become so used to paper plates and plastic cups within your house. We just become this disposable world. Right, but you're also used to dishwashers too and so in your situation you or even you are a little spoiled because you're using your uh, non-disposable glasses and things right. like that but you don't have to physically wash them that's true i don't feel bad about that though because <laughs> they're energy <laughs> I savers yes, I, when i, I hear the you. dishwasher on yeah. these days i know we're way on a tangent over here but Today, you turn on a dishwasher, you can hardly hear it washing. You know why? Because it's not hardly using any water at all. It's like three drops of water in there are supposed to wash your dish. Oh, it's terrible. But anyway. Well, you know what? I never knew that much about (laughs) dishwasher technology. That's why they're quiet, because they're energy savers. They don't get as hot, and Um, they don't use as much water, unless you really push the sanitation button. Well, back to... Which might be good for instruments, coming back to your instruments. There you go. Well, you know what? The thing is with instruments is that if you have stainless steel instruments, instruments that are meant to be reused, let's mm-hmm. say a, one of those metal scalpel handles where that you put... Yes, a new a, blade a on new every blade time, on. sure. Well, the thing is, is that you are going to reuse them, but you have to be very careful. You've got to return them to the condition they were in before they were utilized. That is clean enough or, or disinfected enough so that you don't pass an infection to somebody right. from some rotting... Tissue or material, which is what they did, and before they understood the mechanism of Of infections, and that they were just touching person to person to person and using instruments over and over with hardly washing them. I think you know they wipe them on their disgusting pants and reuse them. So. Well, they would be very insulted if you called their pants disgusting. <laughs> hey, they didn't know any better. It's not their fault. They didn't understand what was really happening. So the bottom line is the quality of medical care that you're going to be able to give in an austere setting, in a remote setting, uh, off the grid. That The quality of care is got, it really depends a little bit on the level of cleanliness of the equipment that you're going to use. And so you may have heard of the words sterile and clean. We use them very loosely uh or I hear them used very loosely a lot, but what's the actual difference? Well, when it comes to medical protection, sterility means the complete absence of germs or microbes. Sterile technique involves hand washing with special solutions, use of special instruments, towels, dressings that are prepared in a certain way using certain machines like autoclaves. Now, when these are used on a patient, the area immediately around these, these items is prepared in a special way, and we call that a sterile field. And the sterile field is isolated, and it's closely guarded to prevent contact with anything that would allow microorganisms to invade it. Of course, it's very difficult to achieve a sterile field or anything similar to it if you're in a a, a remote environment, you're in on some mission to Haiti or some other uh, underdeveloped country. And so in this circumstance, you might have to look at a different goal and the goal is to keep things clean 
clean techniques concentrate on prevention by reducing the numbers of microorganisms that could be transferred from one person to another by medical instruments or other supplies. And meticulous hand washing with soap and water, for example, uh, and hot water especially, is the cornerstone of a clean field. Now, most survival setting, this may be as good as it gets, but is it that bad? Well, with regards to wound care, there is very little research that really compares clean versus sterile technique. In one study, though, an experiment was conducted in which one group of patients had their wounds cleaned with sterile saline solution and the other group with just plain old tap water, drinking water, water clean enough to drink. Amazingly, the infection rate was about 5.4% in the tap water group compared to 10% in the sterile saline group. So, indeed, there are studies that show that tap water may be even better. Uh, another study revealed no difference in infection rates, which is probably what the real truth is, uh, in wounds that were treated in a sterile fashion as opposed to a meticulously clean technique. Therefore, we, in our, when we talk, we right. usually recommend using clean, drinkable water for most remote wound care. And I think that's the big point, is that it has to be potable. So you're not just getting any water source that happens to be around. It has to be something that you know that when you have drank it, that you didn't get sick. So that you have filtered it or you have treated it with some chemical tablets. Maybe you have also boiled it or put it through a commercial filter, which may be a portable one, like a, a Berkey or a mini Sawyer, but you've done something to make sure that if you drank that water that you weren't getting sick. And that's actually good enough for wound care, and that's really why I don't put water or a lot of saline in our medical kits because wherever you are, you should have a water source. If you don't, you need to go somewhere else in right. survival situations. You have always got to have a water source, and it's not just because you've got to clean wounds. It's because people need to drink good water. So I always expect that you know on your treks that you're going to have a source of water, and if you're carrying food, you're probably carrying some water either. So also, so I don't need to put water in the medical supplies. You're going to be able to find it or have it with you. But making it safe to drink, like you said, in the studies had better or the same Not, effects right. with probably wound washing. Yeah, same. I mean, it makes sense that it would have the same effects. I can't imagine that you would get more infections with sterile water, although... Thinking about it, uh, from a medical professional point of view, we feel that sometimes using things that are officially medical supplies do work better. So it's possible that the people who were using the sterile supplies didn't wash as much. And so maybe they only spent, you know, a few seconds cleaning a, an infected wound or just a routine wound or even the initial wound because they thought, well, I'm using sterile water, so I don't have to wash this enough. And really what you need to, to get with wound cleaning, either initial or while you're doing your dressing changes, is that, you know, you, you have to – it's mechanical. Right. It's not about the fluid. It's about the mechanism of the water, washing away bacteria or you mechanically scrubbing while you're washing. Exactly. And that's so that why you're I would... flushing away debris and dirt 
and and things that could cause infection. Right. That's why we pay so much attention to hand washing. Exactly. So when you're washing these wounds, it's not about the fluid. It's about the procedure. So I'm thinking that maybe medical professionals who are using these sterile fluids feel, well, because I'm using a sterile fluid, I don't have to wash it as long or as aggressively. And the people who were using just the tap water said, oh, my gosh, I'm not using an official sterile fluid, so I need to wash harder and longer. Mm. And maybe it was the technique that actually had the better infection rates. So don't let an actual sterile fluid fool you into thinking you're cleaning better. It's still your technique regardless of what you're using. That's true. And you know what you have to think about is not just hand washing technique, just what, or or even sterile technique with regards to instruments, uh, but work surfaces. Work surfaces have to be clean. Yes. You know, those sterile instruments you put on a work surface, if you don't have a good sterile field around those instruments could increase the risk of infection. So to maintain a clean area, you got to have disinfectants. And disinfectants are substances that are applied to non-living objects to destroy microbes. And this would include surfaces where you treat patients or even prepare food if you think about it. Uh, disinfection does not necessarily kill all bugs and as such is not as effective as sterilization, which goes through a more extreme process to reach that goal. And an example of a disinfectant would be bleach. Let's say one part bleach, nine, pounds, nine parts water, 10% bleach solution would be a pretty reasonable disinfectant solution. So have some bleach available. That's always useful. We'll talk about that in, in a minute as well. Uh, disinfection removes bacteria, viruses, other bugs, as sometimes considered the same as decontamination. But decontamination actually also pertains to removal of noxious chemicals or radiation. And the removal of non-living toxins like radiation from a surface would therefore be decontamination, but not disinfection. Now, it's useful to know the difference between a disinfectant, an antibiotic, and an antiseptic. We mentioned that a few shows ago. While disinfectants kill bacteria and viruses on the surface of non-living tissue, like kitchen counters, uh, antiseptics kill microbes on living tissue surfaces like skin. And examples of antiseptics include povidone iodine solution, betadine, chlorhexidine, hibiclens, and benzalkonium chloride, or BZK. Now, antibiotics are able to destroy microorganisms that live inside the body, and these include drugs like ampicillin or amoxicillin, doxycycline, metronidazole, many others. And we talk about these in detail in our Survival Medicine Handbook and in on our website and on our YouTube channel. Well, everywhere, pretty much. Now, many of your medical items, like instruments and some dressings, may already come sterile. And in survival, dressings, unfortunately, are consumed. And sterile instruments you intend to reuse become dirty. This leads to the question as to how to sterilize your medical reusables, like clamps, needle holders, and stuff like that. I produce a store of sterile dressings. There are a number of ways you can accomplish this goal, and each of them have pros and cons. And simply placing your instruments in boiling water for about 30 minutes, gently boiling water, would be a pretty reasonable strategy. But remember that boiling by itself may not eliminate some bacterial spores, bacteria that's not active but is in a uh, sort of capsule of sorts that... uh, they live in that's very actually protective for them and indeed that 
may not, uh, boiling, that is, may not totally eliminate all bacterial spores. They also, uh, boiling uh, water can cause issue with rusting over time for a lot of instruments, especially sharp instruments like scissors or knives. Oh, by the way, always sterilize scissors and clamps in the open position. Remember, uh, scissors may have tissue, dead tissue or, or infected tissue in the inside of the clamp or, or scissors on the inside of the uh, teeth of the scissors. And so <clears throat> it's important to always sterilize these things in the open position. Now, soaking in bleach, sodium hypochlorite solution, is something that can be done as well. A 10% bleach solution, as I mentioned before, 15 to 30 minutes uh, of soaking in that solution will disinfect instruments, but no longer, or you'll start having rusting uh, and other kinds of degradation of the instruments right they get they get discolored right you'll notice exactly some recommend adding a teaspoon of baking soda slow down deterioration almost makes it like a kind of dakin solution Oh, interesting. right something that we talked about a few shows ago that's a time-honored wound wound care treatment you know i've been using that oh good for (laughs) you remember i got cut yes a couple days ago on my Uh toe yes i've been spraying dakin solution on it good for you infection see you are just amazing (laughs) So when you use, uh, now the thing is, is that when you use bleach to clean instruments, they really should be rinsed in sterilized water afterwards. So to get the, the bleach off. Now storing in alcohol, 70% isopropyl alcohol, rubbing alcohol for 30 minutes. That's another option. I've even heard people say that they'll put instruments in a metal tray, metal tray with alcohol and then ignite them, set them on fire. Oh, no. I don't know why they do that. Flambe <laughs> instruments? Yes, I know. <laughs> Crazy. Well, I it mean, sounds uh, dangerous, right. but it and does scary. work. But it, it it does work. Flame fire by itself it, I, or with alcohol would I work. I get it. Alcohol will work by itself also. But remember, the more stuff that you, more the trauma more al- you put these things through, well, these instruments also, through. The more alcohol you pour in the instruments, the more flame you're going to get. So yeah, don't put them in a tray of alcohol and set that on fire. Right. I'm thinking you probably just want to. Dip the instruments in alcohol right. and then right. maybe light you'll, them. You'll, I'm sure. I'm sure it causes so damage. Scary either way. I'm sure it would cause damage to the instruments and certainly cause damage to your eyebrows if you do <laughs> do it too close. <laughs> Probably easier to just use the alcohol, but oh, wow. But heat does work. There are chemical solutions that are specifically meant for the purpose of high level disinfection, not necessarily sterility, uh, without using heat, and uh, those are. Uh, in certain brand names, a popular brand is called Sidex. Sidex OP, OPA. Bird, quiet. I think we have one that's called um, Sanicide too. Sanicide, that's that, another one. I think that's there are a lot one of different of the ones we have. A lot of different we brands. We have a few different ones. Uh, it's a solution that has that no thalaldehyde and glutaraldehyde as an active ingredient. Uh, What you do is you have a tray with this solution. You insert the instruments into the tray for about 20 minutes for basic disinfection. And soaking them overnight gives an acceptable level of near sterility, I guess, for survival purposes at least. And they even come with test strips that identify if the solution gets contaminated. Has worked, exactly. And if it doesn't get contaminated, you might even be able to use that same solution again for a period of time, a short period of time, maybe up to two weeks. Now... As an alternative, some have recommended using concentrated solutions 
of hydrogen peroxide, maybe 6 to 7.5%. Do that for about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, household hydrogen peroxide, however, is only 3%. 3% right. So therefore, you need to find <clears throat> this specifically higher uh, concentration of hydrogen peroxide. And don't use that higher concentration on your skin right. ever for any reason. Or, you know what? You'll Ouch. learn a very big lesson and you won't do it again. Absolutely. Because even just regular hydrogen peroxide, if you put a few drops of that on the back of your hand and leave it, it burns. Yes. It will burn you. Oh, yeah. You have to be careful. Now, ovens, if you do have power, you can use heat from an oven. Uh, For a typical oven, metal instruments, you would wrap them in aluminum foil or place them in metal trays uh, and then heat the oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit for about 30 minutes. Uh, alternatively, you can do it for two hours for, at 325 degrees. Okay, just remember, before you do this, you have to scrub them really, really well. Right. I used to work in Central Supply Room. This is called CSR. It was my first job in a hospital. And our entire job was bringing supplies to the f- hospital floors and taking their old instruments that, that were dirty, taking them to our department, scrubbing them, Wrapping them, putting them in plastic wrappers that were put into an oven with a little indicator, like you're saying, there's indicators, so that we knew once they were autoclaved, which is the official machine that sterilizes instruments, that they had actually worked and make sure we, we dated them. Yeah, hospitals use a type of pressure cooker. So you got to wash them right, called, first. Right, right. <laughs> wash them, scrub them first. Uh, then uh, hospitals would put them after that into an autoclave, a type right. of pressure cooker that uses steam to clean instruments and surgical towels and bandages and other items. And all modern, modern medical facilities clean their equipment with this type of device. Now, maybe the best thing for you to do is to use is to have a pressure cooker. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, One more step besides scrubbing them is to make sure that whatever procedure you use, whether you're soaking them or you're lighting them on fire or you're putting them in the oven or a pressure cooker or an autoclave or some other techniques I think you're going to mention in a few minutes is that they're open. So that your scissors are open because that area where they're overlapped is, is you know, contained. Right. Because and is it, could it going be, to be an exposed, is right. it going to be as exposed as the rest of it? So right. The sure inside of, right. And the inside of a clamp may have, you know, material in it too that sure. needs to be scrubbed off. Absolutely. Exactly. You want that to be exposed to the, the heat whatever or, procedure, or chemical exactly. procedure, whatever you're using. So if you have a pressure cooker or a counter of powder supplies, that's pretty darn close to having an autoclave. It allows you to approach the level of sterility, certainly required for minor surgical procedures. What you'll need to do is reach about 15 to 20 PSI uh, for about 20 to 30 minutes and then allow everything to cool gradually. As you can imagine, pressure cookers are not easy to lug from place to place. So it's best for those people who plan to stay yeah, in heavy. place. Right, if you're bugging <laughs> in. Uh, in a disaster, well, you know, then that might be an option for you. And have an have a pressure cooker just for your instruments. Don't can food or cook stuff and then use them for your instruments. You really want to have one that's just. If you for can those, dedicate yeah. one, that would be awesome. Absolutely, get an extra one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you know, uh, there has been other there have been other developments in the quest to put together a portable and reliable method to sterilize instruments, something more portable than obviously having a couple of pressure cookers. And the military actually commissioned a recent study 
that was published in the journal Wilderness and Environmental Medicine last year and explored the use of UV light, UVC light to be specific, as a survival medical tool. Okay, the bird is making confetti with newspaper. Okay. Ghost well, entertain the bird so he stops tearing newspaper. Okie doke. <laughs> in the study that I'm talking about, they took medical instruments, they let them sit in a soup loaded with MRSA and all sorts of other bacteria and they allowed it to sit in this soup and get all nasty. And then they were then removed, these instruments were then removed and scrubbed with chlorhexidine Hippoclans for about 30 seconds and then dried with a sterile gauze pad. Then an ultraviolet C wand, which you can buy uh, online, by the way, and some of them can even be uh, battery powered. They passed it over the instruments. They hung up the instruments. They passed it within four inches over the instruments for about 45 seconds. Then they evaluated them later to see if they had bacteria on them. And sure enough, Evaluation afterwards revealed a 100% reduction of bacteria and achieved levels of sterilization acceptable for immediate use in the field. And if the instruments were not used right away, you could vacuum seal them and like in a food saver type of thing. And that extended the life of sterility. So there are all sorts of new things on the horizon that might be useful for us uh, in off-grid settings. Sometimes, of course, you know, the, what the new technology is very high level technology and certainly wouldn't apply to us but this one actually if you had a battery powered uvc one might actually be an option for you yeah because they just use regular batteries absolutely and you can get rechargeables absolutely friends <laughs> friends have you felt the Who joy talking i'm to? talking to my friends oh friends so many friends have you felt the joy and satisfaction you get from helping the elderly well, why not make an old man very happy? That's me, by the way. <laughs> By getting a copy of our 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, now available at doomandbloom.net or at amazon.com. The Survival Medicine Handbook has all sorts of news that you can use in times of trouble. So get a copy. I guarantee you'll be glad you put our book in your survival library. Well, let's talk a little bit about different medical problems here. We have... Um, Gunshot wounds, we have broken bones. We're not going to talk about those today because we've talked about them actually pretty recently. And sometimes, though, little things can make people miserable and affect their ability to contribute to group efforts. And skin inflammation, called dermatitis, is one of the issues that a caregiver can't ignore if the group is going to function at 100% efficiency. Now, skin conditions can have various causes, and they vary in appearance from case to case, although most present with redness, itchiness, and sometimes with swelling. Now, you might not consider itchiness to be a, a problem worth the medic's attention, but believe me, if you had a rash that involved continuous scratching that traumatizes the skin, breaks your natural armor, if, you, if there's a break in the skin, and could lead to a type of infection called cellulitis once the skin is broken. And cellulitis, by the way, has nothing to do with cellulite which is the little puckers in the skin, I guess, that, uh, that people get if they have a little extra weight. Now, some of the... Is that correct? Is that what cellulite is? I'm pretty yes. sure. Yes. yes. All right, there you go. <laughs> it is. They no, don't teach us a lot about cellulite in medical school. 
Well, some of the most well, common... We all just yeah. try to ignore it yeah. as much as possible. Well, there you go. <laughs> some of the more common types of dermatitis are contact dermatitis. Of course, that's caused by physical contact with allergy-causing substances. We call those things allergens. And the allergen involved is so varied as to include almost everything. You could be allergic to just about anything, uh, including soaps and laundry detergents and um, household cleaning products. Uh, rubber or latex, a lot of latex allergies. Uh, we're in the midst of an epidemic of deodorants. that in this country. Did you mention deodorants? deodorants? Right, Makeup. deodorants, right, perfumes, uh, metal, such uh, such as nickel. A lot of people allergic to nickel. Um, some people allergic to jewelry that is not made of gold. Yes, yes. That's why gold is so good because... I guess besides it has a, the least amount of irritation, right? But oh yeah, I know personally if I don't put in earrings that are gold, I get a rash. My earlobe turns bright red, and it hurts. Wow, crazy so I don't baby! Wear earrings a lot. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, let's see, preservatives might do it, and of course there are natural things that we do it. Weeds like poison ivy. Uh, Oh, poison oak, poison sumac, these things might also cause contact dermatitis. You know, as it's well. funny you just mentioned this. While you were talking a few minutes ago, I went down and put a load of laundry in because we had gone down in our house in Gatlinburg to cut the vines and the weeds that right. are everywhere clear out around the air conditioner. And right, right. Some of the poor trees are being choked by vines. <clears throat> but. I know you and I were both exposed to poison ivy. Yes. Because I saw it. Yep. And, and we were good. We had gloves on and we had long sleeves and long pants. But I just washed, and when we came up, we washed ourselves with Fels Nafta soap. But yes. I just put shavings of Fels Nafta soap in the washing machine. And I want to bring that up because you just mentioned poison ivy, oak, and sumac. If right. you want to get rid of that resin, Shave off the Fels Nafta soap in the washing machine. You could still put your regular soap in there, too. Right. You know, Fels Nafta was a very popular general laundry detergent back in the day in the 1940s. Uh, that soap is now pretty much specialized for poison ivy and, and other kinds of hard-to-get-off-your-skin resins and oils. It's still in the laundry section in Walmart. It's called... 94 uh, cents. It's spelled Fels, F-E-L-S, then hyphen, Naphtha, N-A-P-T-H-A. That's Fels Naphtha soap. Now, usually... Good stuff, though. Right. Now, usually the first exposure with whatever this allergen is that you're going to be exposed to only produces antibodies but does not produce a major skin reaction. Once... Right. Antibodies exist, however, against a certain substance. Well, the next next exposure is the one that can cause pretty significant irritation. Matter of fact, in the worst cases, it causes anaphylaxis. Do you remember that one time we you know, came severe up here allergic and you cleared out the back and yep. you didn't wash with Fels Nafta, and for weeks yep. you had a horrible itchy rash. Yep, yep. that's it was right. Terrible. Yeah, it was oh, pretty bad. Just as a hint, folks, you can actually bathe, shower, or bathe with. The Fels Nafta soap before you know you're going to go out in the woods, berry picking or hunting or whatever it is that you're going to go do outside that you might be exposed to this stuff. As a preventative, it actually coats your skin a little bit. Probably not for days, but <laughs> at least the day you're going out um, so you don't have as bad a reaction. Yes. It's almost like a protective, protective coating. yes. I mean, wash your soap off. You're not leaving the soap on, but bathe with it, and it, it might give you a little bit of extra protection. Of course, once you have figured out 
that you are allergic to a certain thing, avoidance is the best way to avoid contact dermatitis. But they also use things like corticosteroid creams and cool, moist compresses. These help uh, relieve some of the irritation, and you use these until the rash is improved. Now, antihistamines like Benadryl, Claritin, they may also help relieve itching. There's another type of uh, dermatitis allergic related called atopic dermatitis and that causes some people call it eczema as well uh, a chronic itchy rash that can be caused in various areas at once sometimes the face that could be accompanied by allergic type reactions like hay fever or or asthma and dust mites animal dander food allergies are very possible causes of this atopic dermatitis looks very similar, and you treat it similar to contact dermatitis, but you may not have actually physically noticed that you were touching things. Sometimes people just get it in cold weather for one reason or another. Now, there's other types of skin conditions, uh, seborrheic dermatitis. Seborrhea is a condition that affects areas that contain uh, glands that have oil in them called sebaceous glands. And those are some of the glands that you have in your face and may be involved with acne. Uh, but this particular type of dermatitis is actually more characterized by some scaling with redness and itching. Now, the most common cause of this or a version of this that you'll see is dandruff. And that's a type of seborrheic dermatitis. Uh, in infants, they call a cradle cap. And the area near the nose and lips is another area where, where you might see this kind of dermatitis. Now, scalp irritations caused by seborrhea can be treated by shampoos shampoos that contain pyrithione zinc, that's head and shoulders, and there are also shampoos that contain tar, which is uh, considered to be effective against the major issues with dandruff or seborrheic dermatitis. It can also be treated by an antifungal called ketoconazole, which actually comes also in, uh, fish, in, a, in a fish version that, and this supports the, although you shouldn't use it for every fungal infection, it's pretty strong, can, has some side effects. Um, and so this, the fact that it can be treated also by certain antifungals sort of supports the belief that yeast may play a part in the development of this condition. So it's very interesting. Now then there's neurodermatitis. Neurodermatitis is a type of uh, skin condition that manifests as chronic, itchy, and raised patches, sometimes red, sometimes it's just darker than normal skin and they don't know why people get this although insect bites and tight clothing dryness even anxiety have been implicated as possibilities because you you get into this vicious cycle of itching and scratching some people do that just as a nervous habit and what happens is is that the skin is already irritated and what the itching uh, the chronic itching and scratching does is it leads to that skin becoming thicker scaly and sort of leathery that's a condition called lichenification lichenification as in like lichens that grow on a tree and there are these raised areas on a tree so you get these raised thickened areas leathery looking areas on your skin that's called lichen simplex or neurodermatitis uh, treatment for this includes antihistamines like Benadryl, steroid creams, especially at night where some people just scratch irritated areas without knowing because they're mostly asleep. Uh, injections of corticosteroids are given in the affected areas if it's bad enough, and uh, anti-anxiety medication are given to those people who are scratching out of nervousness. Then you have shingles. That's another skin irritation that is pretty significant. It's uh, caused by not... Uh, 
the herpes that people get from sexually sexual transmission, yes. right? Exactly, not the sexually transmitted disease, but something else called herpes zoster. Seen in people that have been previously have been infected with chickenpox, which is a lot of people. Uh, the dormant virus of chickenpox is called varicella zoster, and that becomes active in nerves. And what happens is. Uh, it appears as a blistering rash with itching, burning, and pain. A lot of pain. That's the problem. You've seen advertisements now. They have, I I hate to even mention it, a vaccine. I'm not advocating vaccines. I'm just letting folks know if that is something they're interested in. Um, I believe they've said that one out of three older folks will get uh, issues with That's shingles. Really scary because right. that is terribly painful. Right. And it's bliss, uh, usually is a blistery condition, a painful condition. It lasts two to four weeks, could be very uncomfortable. Uh, you can treat it with certain antiviral medicines like a cyclovir, Valtrex, Famvir. But the one it doesn't get treated that doesn't treat is the one I usually recommend that people store. That's Tamiflu for influenza. Flu, flu, the flu, right? right. Influenza that works. Completely different virus, folks. That works for influenza, but it does not work for uh, uh, herpes zoster or shingles. There's about a billion, trillion, gazillion different viruses out there. We'll never ever know them all. Oh, they just and they're mutating all the time. So there's even more. Since I started talking. <laughs> now, people can get uh, dermatitis or inflamed areas not even not from an infection. You can get it just from poor blood flow under the skin. Now, you'll see that in a lot of people on the lower legs of individuals that have varicose veins. Uh, mostly this occurs in people over 50 or people with poor circulation. That's obviously a major factor, although some people that have had trauma to their limbs for one reason or another that damages the circulation that could be a factor now to deal with dermatitis related to poor circulation you may have to use support stockings some people use mild steroids Uh, of course in normal times you may have the ability to deal with varicose veins surgically or with other high technology so we actually haven't talked about that for a while you you can find articles that we've written on in the past on on the website at doomandbloom.net Another common one is rosacea. Rosacea is an extremely common condition. It manifests as a reddened area on the face uh, that's caused by swollen blood vessels. So uh, usually this occurs in fair-skinned individuals, begins in middle age. So your uncle or your grandpa you might notice has a, a sort of a slightly enlarged big red nose. Well, it may not be because he drinks a lot. It could be. <laughs> Yeah. Don't automatically think that. It it may be because he has rosacea. Rosacea is oftentimes accompanied by spider veins, flushing, sometimes uh, an appearance like acne, but it's not acne. It won't respond to acne medicine. Sometimes you do, they do use antibiotics. Vitamin A related medications are actually very useful for, for this condition. Now, many of you out there may know someone or may have, may yourself, bird, quiet. I know. I was trying to entertain him with his little stuffed toy, uh, which he was hanging upside down on instead of tearing up paper. Oh, now birds. Gonna, now he's just going to yak. Bird, bird, bird. All right. Bird, well, bird, bird. well, anyhow, let's talk about psoriasis. Psoriasis is something that you may know people who have or you may have it yourself. It's a, a series of thickened patches of reddened skin that have sort of a silvery flakiness to them. And the most common areas that are affected are the... Elbows, knees, scalp, armpits. Okay, we, he's not going to let me finish this. Get that bird out of here. Or something. Let me 
Darn bird. The most common areas affected are the elbows, knees, scalp, armpits, uh, and lower back. Now, it's an autoimmune condition, a condition in which your body actually causes this. The body mistakenly thinks that some injury has occurred on your skin and it causes a buildup of new skin cells. That's what the psoriasis is. Now, they've used moisturizers, moisturizers, they've used corticosteroids, they've used coal tar, C-O-A-L-T-A-R, coal tar ointments. These are thought to be helpful. There are a lot of other medicines that are uh, on the market. Unfortunately, some of them have pretty bad side effects, but uh, they they may actually be very helpful. Uh, psoriasis does respond to sunlight, they say, so phototherapy using special lamps are sometimes used for this kind of skin inflammation. There are natural supplements, of course, that improve dermatitis that uh, you'll find all over the place. Omega-3 fatty acids, these have an anti-inflammatory effect and good antioxidant. Uh, You can use it with evening primrose oil, especially effective. Chamomile cream, thought to be as potent as a mild hydrocortisone. Uh, Calendula has skin-soothing properties, may protect against uh, contact dermatitis. Uh, Some people, however, shouldn't use it on... You shouldn't use it on broken broken skin because it can trigger an allergic reaction and amy i think you added some natural remedies what other natural remedies do you have Uh, did you mention apple cider vinegar no okay that can be used as a compress um or underneath dressings also raw unprocessed honey is always super soothing, um, even with burns, and it's okay with open wounds. I know you just mentioned um, a couple of the natural things aren't really good on open wounds, especially like comfrey. Yeah, you don't want to put on open wounds. But raw, unprocessed honey not only soothes; it's a great um, consistency for tissue healing, and it prevents infections. So it's like putting a healing cream on, plus an infection treatment and an infection prevention (laughs) so it's kind of all wrapped up in one so if you have something that's open and irritated uh and maybe starting to get infected you might want to throw some raw processed honey you can also use for um irritated skin compresses of tea oh yeah you need to use tea leaves wrapped in gauze Mm -hmm. or um linen which you can reuse um, like as a compress, make sure you soak the tea in some warm water so the leaves get, you know, kind of squishy and moist and release their tannins. It's very soothing. You can mix that those leaves with the raw honey, too, and make a really nice compress. Um, so those are some of the things. You can also use coconut oil. Uh-huh. It's very he- healing and soothing. Um, if you're going to use the essential oils, make sure you do mix them at least 50-50 in a carrier oil which can be an olive oil or even the coconut oil okay make a good carrier oil you never just want to use those straight because they can be super irritating aloe vera i'm not sure if you mentioned aloe vera no but i'm going to mention it now these are some of the some of the things that you should have in in your medical kit for skin issues include things like aloe vera should include things like sunscreen felsnap the soap we mentioned as well uh, of course, triple antibiotic cream I think people should have. You should have Lotrimin, Clotrimazole, helpful for athlete's foot and ringworm and other skin yeast infections. Hydrocortisone cream, get the strongest one that you can find that's over the counter. Um, 
apple cider vinegar. Yep, apple cider vinegar. Um, oh, the bird. That's sorry. right. Uh, Benadryl, <laughs> I think, is very important. You should ask your doctor to give you a prescription for an EpiPen for severe allergic reactions, atopic uh, type reactions. Uh, that's something very important. Very few physicians, by the way, will deny you a, a supply of this very important item. Oh, they are expensive, though. The best tea to use is the chamomile. Remember how you said Right. Like well, I mentioned fiber. chamomile, yeah. So use chamomile tea leaves or chamomile tea bags. Absolutely. All right. So chamomile tea, tea bag compresses are very useful. And uh, a lot of herbal salves, let's say, for example, uh, arnica salve would be very useful for pain relief in a lot of people who are experiencing issues with painful uh, skin reactions. So these are things, don't forget, insect repellents. These are always important. Uh, commercial products include DEET, and there are natural products like citronella and oil of lemon eucalyptus. Not oil of lemon or oil of eucalyptus, oil of lemon eucalyptus. And we just got two of those. Plants, we yes, we are actually growing yep. that now. Yep. Lemon eucalyptus. Yeah, it's it's good to have a tropical, subtropical so environment have, in South Florida. We can grow all sorts of crazy stuff. I have stuff. lemongrass in the front yard. I have citronella on the patio, and I have two lemon eucalyptus trees. Now, if we could just grow a forest of that around our, tr- our house in South Florida. You won't have any <laughs> mosquitoes whatsoever, huh? Well, I'm testing out the lemon eucalyptus to see if it's happy. Well, we are just about out of time. I'm amazed that we were able to get through this. This was this show, by the way, was uh, on location in Gatlinburg. We were in our home in Gatlinburg, which luckily escaped the fire. When we oh, had yeah, to bring, we're going to be here for a long time, so we brought the bird along with us. And there's oh, just not too many spaces bird. for the bird to be. Oh my gosh. So I do apologize if you were annoyed <laughs> by our yakky yakky. Bird. I tried to entertain him, him or her. <laughs> and I just want to mention one more time, folks, that we're going to be in Lexington, Kentucky this weekend, 25th, 26th, 27th. Uh, next weekend we'll be in Chattanooga. That's August, and we're in 2017 here, if you're listening to this in the future. Right. And uh, so the weekend of, actually, Labor Day is mm-hmm. when we'll be in Chattanooga. Right. And the following weekend, we'll be in Knoxville, Tennessee. That's right. If you want to join our suture class, there's still spots in both uh, Knoxville and Chattanooga. So yeah. just go to the website <laughs> and click on the classes page, and you the can find it there. The bird recommends the class, highly. Indeed. Well, very good. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton, MD also known as Dr. Bones and Amy Alton, ARMP, also known as Nurse Amy. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.